0: Live from the Hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Arya Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel.
1: All right, Shalom Fellowship. Great to see you all. Hello, hello, hello. Shalom from the Land of Israel. Can everyone hear me? Yes? Okay, good, 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 good. Great. Okay, so I want to start off the fellowship with two stories, updates, personal stories, amazing stories. The first one is about the Arugot farm. This last week, it was unprepared, it wasn't. I didn't know that it was happening until it sort of like unfolded. But one of the biggest Christian leaders in the world came to the farm. Her name is Pastor Paula White, and she is the spiritual advisor for President Donald Trump. She's literally his pastor, and she loves Israel. Um, but her understanding now of Judea and Samaria, the relationship that's growing between Jews and Christians. The next day after she left our farm, there was a Jerusalem Post article that was published. And it says like this, Trump's faith advisors, Christians must learn from Jews, not convert them. And she, the, 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 that was the headline. <laughs> Just like, wow, you know, one day with Arya Bramowitz on the Arugo farm. And it's like life-changing. It's like, wow, we need to learn from that guy. That's the way that I see it at least. And then what happened next? Uh, the, the article continues. A former U.S. President, Donald Trump's closest evangelical advisor, Florida pastor, Paula White, believes Christians should learn from Jews rather than try to convert them. So much so that she is now in Israel studying Torah with Orthodox Jews. So she spent the day learning with us. Then she went to Hebron and was learning with Rav Simcha Hochbaum. Then she learned with one of Tehila's mentors, Rabbanit Shani Terrigan, and talk about a life-changing event. And the Arugot Farm was sort of at the heart of this... I guess, just a revolution. And so that was absolutely amazing to just see that this little mountain at the edge of Jewish settlement in Israel, at the edge of the desert, where the internet reception is not that great. And then somehow some of the most powerful, most influential people in the world, I mean, one telephone from President Donald Trump came out to learn about Judea and Samaria, to learn Torah, to learn about the history, to learn about the Tanakh from the Jews in Judea. And it was just such an amazing day, uh, I would say life-changing. I think that's what happened. And so that was update number one. The amazing things and the miracles of the Arugot farm, we just continue to be stunned and amazed because it's not like we like wheeled and dealed and made that happen. We're just living on our mountain and they're just coming. And so the second thing that I wanted to tell you about is about my oldest son, Lavi. Lavi now is 19 years old. He finished the uh, the, uh, the, uh, military, his high school. And now he's in a year of learning in yeshiva before he goes into the army. And, you know, all of my prayers in one way or another, even when I'm praying for other people, even when I'm praying for myself, somehow my children are always inside the hearts of all of my prayers. They're my gifts. They're my responsibility. They're my greatest joy. They can be the source of my greatest pain (laughs) and Um, I think Jordan Peterson said it really beautifully, he said, you can only be as happy as your least happy child. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that, that you just feel their pain, you're with them in their hard times. And you just so much want them to succeed. And for the last six months, Lavi has gone through the hoops. He has gone through interviews and group dynamics and tests upon tests upon tests to get into this elite intelligence unit in the military. It's actually a 10-year program. Four years you learn in the Technion. That's kind of like Israel's MIT. And then you're in the military until you're 30. (laughs) And Jeremy, Jeremy,
2: if you tell them this... You're going to need to kill them if you tell them this.
1: No, the truth is I won't ever know what he's working on. I won't know what he's doing, but only 23 uh, people were accepted this year into the PSGOT program. And we are just so honored that Lavi received a little bit of the brilliance of Tehillah Gimpel. And he was selected among hundreds of applicants and only three, three were 23 were accepted. And we got the message last week that he was accepted to this unit and it is just so exciting for us we don't know we don't know what to do with ourselves because what could a 19 year old do serving the country serving his people with his gifts that he was given it's just the best ever and you know lovey was not a simple child if Ari knows that he was we you know we used to always say, that, you know, children are like pancakes. The first one doesn't always come out the way you want. That's sort of like the story is of the Torah. You know, like the firstborn sons in the Torah are not the other. There's Ishmael and there's Asab. And there's like some challenges with the firstborn sons. And Levi was sort of like our firstborn son. And where I was like, okay, pancakes, you know, they don't always come out exactly the way you want. And, but, you know, it just takes Jeremy, Tehillah is here with me.
2: And she seems a little bit disturbed by the fact that you just compared Levi to Ishmael and Asab.
1: No, I'm just saying, I just saying. you know, it's like a, it was just a, a blueprint that we had that, you know, that's just the way it is. But Baruch Hashem, we got the notice this week. And so he is so happy. We are so happy. What an exciting time. You know, his unit, if you've heard about the new Iron Dome technology that shoots missiles I- and hits the missile at the, in the air, of course, everyone knows the Iron Dome technology. Israel has recently developed a new technology where they're not even shooting missiles anymore. They're shooting lasers. And that saves Israel tens of thousands, millions of dollars, ultimately, because they don't have to shoot a $50,000 missile into the air to intercept the missile. Now it's just a very powerful laser that's able to interact. And that was Lavi's unit. Um, who developed that laser technology. And so who knows what he will be developing to protect and defend Israel. It is super exciting. We are thrilled about that. So last week was a great success on the farm level, on a personal level, and that is encouragement for all parents out there. Breathe deeply. They all grow up. The brain continues to develop. Uh, there was one time where, where Teal and I were watching, I think some comedian somewhere says, you know, sometimes we just, we miss our teenagers now that they've gone off to college. And so what we do is we go upstairs and we bang the door closed over and over again saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And then we remember ah, the nostalgia. <laughs> when we miss our child, we just, we replay it over and over again. And so So don't worry. It's um, they all grow up eventually, and Baruch Hashem, uh, Levi is really coming into his own. And so, I just wanted to share that really great news with the fellowship. And with that good news about family, I want you to know that this fellowship, to, from Tehila and myself, will be entirely dedicated around the subject of family, and in particular, marriage. That is going to be the theme of this week's fellowship. And I already see Ari's face being like, Jeremy's doing. A, a podcast about marriage. And that, that's fair. I have disclaimers before I get into it because I'm not saying that I'm a good husband, but I am saying that perhaps I have learned a few tricks of the trade, a few insights along the way. And of course, Tahila is going to start off the session. And so I'm not concerned, but with that, I would like to pray for everyone's family today pray for everyone's marriage, pray for everyone's children, that we should bring our hearts together, just reading the chats from Africa and from Europe and from all across the United States, that, um, that this session should be a blessing for everyone's marriage, for everyone's children, for everyone's loved ones. Hashem, master of the world, bless our families, bless our marriages, bless our children. We've come here today to start our week and align our lives with your vision, to align our lives with your will. We know that our families are the most precious thing, the most valuable thing that we have in our lives. Let us put family first. Let us put family in its proper place in our lives. Help us not get confused, not get tempted. Help us not get distracted. Family is the foundation of the Torah. Family is the foundation of our lives. Please shine your light into our homes, into our marriages, into the lives of our children, into our grandchildren into our loved ones. Hashem, your light, may it be the light that guides our homes. One family at a time, one soul at a time. We want to bring more and more light into this world. Bless our families to be living examples of your light and an expression of your Torah in the world. And as we build our homes, may you see it as another brick in your home, In building the temple in Jerusalem, another stone in the walls of your kingdom on earth. Hashem, strengthen our families, build our ark, guard us from the floods all around us, put your shield around our families, and let us grow in righteousness, grow in love, grow in unity, strengthen us, bless us. Amen. Okay, my friends. So now before we kick it in and I hand it off to Ari, which I am going to do in just one second, I do want to say one more update. I wanted to start off positive. You know, I wanted to start off positive. And now, of course, along the way on the Judean frontier, there are highs and lows and challenges and obstacles and we believe that everything is ultimately for the best but I do want to share with you our newest challenge as you know the Arugot farm in the last year maybe two years has actually become a headquarters for Judea and out of the Arugot farm we've actually raised a generation of young men and women that are now starting their own farms and I wanted to tell you the story of our shepherdess who you all know because we visited their home her name is Nechama we have pictures of her from when she worked on our farm and she is on a mission to start her own farm with her husband that she met on our farm. Do we have pictures of Nehama really quickly from, from our with when we had goats in the in the Arugoat farm? There's some just beautiful pictures. A professional photographer came and just took these gorgeous pictures. And so that is Nehama before she was married. She's 19 there, and there she is with our sheep. And she met what can only be seen as a, one of King David's men. That is Israel right there. If you had to imagine, what did King David's men look like? What could they have It's like he jumped out of the pages of the Bible. Back. <laughs> and they met each other and they fell in love and they now have their own child. And they are now starting a new farm in what is called Ma'on. And Ma'on is a biblical area, very connected actually to the mountains of Ziph and the Aru goat farm. And... Um, the next picture that I'm going to show you, I've asked to not be published anywhere. I'm just showing it to the fellowship that are watching live right now. But what happened days ago is that Israel was out with his sheep and he was ambushed, lynched and almost left for dead by a group of Arabs and anarchist leftist Jews. And he received a boulder to the head. He fractured his skull in three places. He's right now deaf in one ear. But Jeremy, make it clear. To it own.
2: wasn't anarchist leftist Jews. They were there, but the actual attack happened from Arabs.
1: No, but they were organized by the leftist Europeans. And like there was this, this was what's coming out now, it seems. It was a strategic attack against him. It was planned. They knew that he was going to be alone out with the sheep. And they, oh yes, the attack was done by Arab terrorists, and they caught the Arab terrorists. And he will now spend many, many years for attempted murder in Israel, at least that he was um, caught and taken to justice. But there he is in the hospital after going through all these different CT scans. He was there for several days. And he's like, I don't know what to say, but Nehama, I feel some sort of fatherly connection to her. I mean, I'm the one that gave her speech on her behalf at her engagement party. And we've been supporting them for many years. I mean, not many years, but many, since they started their new project in order to start this new farm, we have been Sort of wind sort of blowing in their sails. They know that they have our spiritual backing, sometimes our financial backing. And we've done whatever we can to make to ensure their success. We feel as though they're just like farmlets that have come out of Arugot, and they are our responsibility <coughs> no less than the Arugot farm itself. It's like the Arugot farm has become a headquarters, and these are our branches that are slowly inheriting the land of Judea. And so Israel was is obviously he's still recovering half uh, earlier half of his flock of sheep were stolen and so they have just been going through just really difficult times and i want you to understand just the providence the spice cart, god's hand on our farm and on these farms but where they are trying to establish is the ancient biblical site of ma'on and so ma'on is mentioned in the bible in chapter 23 right in the same verse as the mountains of the Arugot farm. If you look at Samuel chapter 23, verse 24, here's what it says. These are the stories when Saul is pursuing David and he's going to hunt them down. And it says, and they arose and went to Ziph, to the mountains of Arugot before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Ma'on in the plain of the south of Yesimon. So from the mountains of Ziph, which is where our farm is, until Ma'on, it's about a a one day hike you could get to Ma'on from the Arugot farm. And if that is the region, those are all the mountains that King David hid in. Those are the mountains that he lived in. And lo and behold, from the Arugot farm, they're extending and trying to establish a new farm in Ma'on. And half of their flock was stolen. And so Ari and I are now working to help them. We will hopefully reach out to the fellowship at some point and maybe you would be able to participate in that huge mitzvah of rehabilitation, of restoration, of strengthening these young pioneers. When I think about the righteous, holy Jews of the world, I really imagine them as being in the top 0.1% of all Jews in the world. They are just so good, so pure, so um, selfless, and they're committed to settling the land of Israel, living a biblical lifestyle entirely by the Torah. And so we're going to do whatever we can to help them. And of course, whatever we do is what our fellowship does. And so, Ezrat Hashem, from this disaster, may they only become stronger, braver, and strengthened. May light come from that darkness. But so far, Baruch Hashem, he's alive, they're well. But seeing Nechama with their new baby walking through the halls of the hospital was—it was traumatic for me. That's really what it was. So Ari and I, we are committed to helping them in any way that we can. And so that is the challenge on the Judean frontier. It's not all good news and Paula White and headlines in the J post. There's also challenges along the way. And um, you know, we got to fight through those. And so with that, Bezrat Hashem, Akolitova, only good will come from this. And so with that, I am going to pass over the microphone to Rabbi Ari Bramwitz to bring some Torah into this conversation. So you're kicking off the fellowship and then Tahila and then me. So Hugo Ari.
2: Okay. Shalom, everybody. Uh, first of all, rarely, I don't think ever have I broadcast a fellowship with the Gila in the room sitting next to me. She has a running commentary that is quite hysterical, which is adding to my experience of listening to you, Jeremy. I don't think you could probably imagine what she's been saying, but um, that's about your marriage and I'll let you get to that soon. And on that subject, thanks for the memo that this fellowship is about marriage. I have a lot to say on the subject but I didn't know up until now, but I want to talk about something else altogether. But I do just want to expand your blessing for one moment, Jeremy. I also want to bless those who are not yet married that are seeking a marriage partner. Hashem should bless you to find your perfect partner that will help you grow and expand in all the ways that are necessary to bring you to a expanded consciousness and closer to God. And I know many of you are searching for that as well, so you should be blessed. Okay, so that being said, uh, I want to cut to the chase because I know Tehila has a lot to say, you have what to say, and we're already running out of time on this fellowship. So this past week was a big one. A lot of things happened at the farm in Israel and the world, but I want to start talking about what you just mentioned at the very beginning, these very special guests that we were blessed to be visited by here at the farm. Like you said, her name was Pastor Paula White, who's the spiritual advisor of President Trump, and she came with her husband, a guy named Jonathan Kane. Have you guys heard of this? Have you heard of this guy? Jonathan Kane. He was uh he's in the band called Journey and he composed and performed many songs. The most famous of which is Don't Stop Believin'. Is that it, Jeremy? I'm not going to sing because then the glass breaks and the birds flying overhead die and it's a whole thing, so I'm not going to sing. But it's a special song. And I actually heard the story of how it was written. And it was inspired by his father, who was a man of true faith that told him, "Don't stop believing, keep it on." And he wrote the song that became an international hit. So actually, this is a him—a picture of him pulling out the guitar and playing some music for us. But anyways, they came out to the farm, and uh, Jeremy and I took them around together. And I'll tell you that when it comes to high-profile people, sometimes you get the feeling that they, you know, have their own agenda, that they're not particularly open and receptive, maybe I'm projecting here, but sometimes it feels like they are in so many words, full of themselves, that they're seeking to find the facts that fit their, you know, priors and reinforce what they already believe. And, uh, but that's not how I felt about these special guests this past week. They were humble and they were sweet and they were filled with questions and they were just so eager to learn. And I've come to believe that there's something about our mountain out here that's like, it attracts people with these qualities like a magnet. don't know you feel that jeremy i know is shaking her head yes violently she was she agrees with that so much anyways we took me yeah
1: it's like a a a self-evident reality that the most wonderful important people have all been drawn to this fellowship have been drawn to the arugot farm and it's like you know some people have very big positions of power and some people are just simple farmers. But, you know, God doesn't see the outside. He sees the inside. And I really do feel like the inside of the people that connect to our farm are the cream of the crop of the people on planet Earth today.
2: Anyways, yeah, so, so we took them around the farm and uh, th- they learned about us and we learned about them and we shared our vision for what we're trying to accomplish in the world, really without ulterior motives, without agendas. It's not like, oh, we are trying to accomplish this, that and the other thing. And it's important for me to say that because I think that the... You know, the agendas to change each other can often go both ways. You know, yes, Christians uh, are often suspect of seeking to evangelize Jews and convert them to Christianity. And justifiably so. Right. Because from what I understand, for many Christians, that is a fundamental tenet of Christianity. And many have told me that in so many words, Christianity without missionizing impulse is not really Christianity at all. Uh, But it's important to also say that Jews are not immune from this impulse either to try to change the other. You know, many Jews are on their own quest to either, you know, sort of get Christians to keep the Noahide laws or even just get Christians to stop seeking to convert Jews to Christianity. And, you know, I do, I should say, I do empathize with that perspective, having spent many years of my life with a mixture of those two desires, if I'm going to be honest. But You know, The longer we're out here, I've started to feel more and more that if I go into an, an encounter with someone with a goal of changing that person to absolutely anything, rather than just accepting them for who they are at that very moment, well, then in many ways, I'm cut from the very same cloth as the very missionary that's trying to convert me. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I'm just, I realize I'm dancing in a minefield here, which I've Feel like I've been doing a lot lately on the fellowship. Unfortunately, it's all of us together, and you guys forgive me if I'm, you know, going off here. But but just let me be clear: it is against the law in Israel to missionize Jews, and uh, and I understand that law, and I think it should be enforced because after thousands of years at the mercy of missionaries who often sought our conversion on pain of death, we shouldn't have to endure the same predations in our own land. But I do believe. That the most effective way for people to change is not through coercive legislation, right? Because, you know, as they say, whatever you resist persists. I've come to believe that the best way to change people is not by seeking to change them at all, rather, by simply being ourselves and letting Hashem's truth speak to the heart. we just let's be ourselves, let's not try to go at it. And, you know, I know that it may sound confusing what I'm really saying here, but it's really quite simple. If they're trying to change me and I am trying to change them into people that are no longer trying to change me, then in the end of the day, we're entering into this relationship, this encounter, each of us trying to change the other. And if that's the case, then I really don't think we have a chance of really building a true friendship based on love and respect because the person in the crosshairs of being changed isn't being loved or valued for who they are. You know, but rather they're being compared and contrasted to who I think they should be and who I'm trying to mold them and craft them into being. And what do I know about anything? You know, what what do any of us know about who is supposed to be what? Because in my heart I really think that it wasn't a coincidence that an encounter of such significance played out during the Torah portion of Korach, right? Because that was Korach's argument, right? He was saying to Moshe who are you, Moshe, to elevate yourself and to elevate Aaron over us? We are all holy. We should all be essentially the same, right? But that is not what Hashem wants. If Hashem wanted us to all be identical, then we wouldn't have been made of so many different pieces and so many different ingredients. He wouldn't have divided the nation of Israel into tribes, each with our own strengths and our own contributions to the greater whole. He wouldn't have created different nations each with their own unique characteristics and talents. He wouldn't have created mankind as, you know, as different as we all are around the world. We would have been identical clones of each other with no differences and no distortions and no variations. In many ways, I think that is the greatest tragedy of the human story throughout history. You know, the never ending quest to make everybody else into a projection of ourselves from Cain and Abel, who couldn't appreciate each other's differences, to Korach, to the world we're living in today, right? Mankind just suffers from this miserable and lethal disorder of not respecting the differences that make us unique. I've had Christians tell me that they're just, if they're going to be honest, that they're intent on just removing the scales from my eyes that are blinding me to the truth. And to them, I respond that that is exactly my goal as well, you know, but if they're, they're dedicating their lives to removing the scales from my eyes, and I'm dedicating my life to removing the scales from my own eyes, then who's left to remove the scales from their eyes? You know, one of the greatest joys of life is seeking Hashem in truth, right? As King David said in Psalm 35, uh, verse 3, Yismach lev happy is the heart that is seeking, seeking God. Happy is the heart who is relentlessly and courageously, Seeking Hashem in truth, to, to abandon our illusions and our falsehoods, you know, even ones that we may hold dear. A lot of our illusions and falsehoods, I know for me personally, I've held dear for my entire life. And it's hard and it takes courage to let those things go sometimes. I still haven't let a lot of mine go. I know it. I don't necessarily know what they are, but I know that they're there. And you know, that's such a beautiful way to draw close and to cleave to our creator. But if we're always dedicated to showing everybody else where they're wrong, then we will remain spiritually stagnant our entire lives. And that is just a tragedy of the highest order. And so we welcomed these sweet people to our farm. And my personal goal was, like Abraham, bringing guests into my home with the purpose of making them feel loved and valued and welcomed for who they are. Not who I think in my divine wisdom that they should be, but who they are right now at this very moment. And so we welcomed them with love and with no ulterior motives. And we sang and we hiked and we ate and we shared our hearts and our families. And then the very next day, we saw this historic headline in the Jerusalem Post in which Pastor White made a very courageous announcement. A very For a Christian leader with a following and a lot on the line, it's a courageous announcement that Christians should be learning from Jews, not trying to convert them. And to me, it felt like a fixing. It felt like a deep historic rectification. That, you know, rather than continue in the path of Korah, which man has been doing since the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, which has only led us to sink to greater and greater depths and being swallowed up by the earth in one way or another again and again, rather than continuing falling into that abyss, we are now rising to greater heights together. Not despite our differences, but because of them. And we see the prophets talk exactly about this, you know, with with unbelievable clarity. Here's uh, Zachariah. He says, oh Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction. Nations shall come to you from the ends of the earth and shall say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthless idols and things in which there is no profit.' And we see that happening right before our eyes right now. I'm sorry, that was actually Jeremiah, forgive me. And and uh, Zechariah, Zachariah, he says, And many people uh, and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to pray before the Lord. Thus says Hashem, Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men from the nations of every language shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, of the seat of a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And this is all happening just real time. At our farm, So I want to bless us, my friends, that we continue in the mission of this fellowship, right, by coming together with hearts of humility and love and recognize that Hashem made us different because He wants us to be different. And the only way to bring about the change the world needs for redemption is by looking deep within ourselves and changing ourselves. And may the love and humility of all of you, the holy people in this fellowship, who I so love and admire and respect who I owe so much to. May you all continue to be a spark that ignites the flames in the hearts of all of mankind, bringing about the redemption for which we have all been yearning. Shalom, my friends. And now for the real show, Tehila. No, 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 no. no. I gonna
1: introduce Tehila. She's not on yet.
2: She's not on yet. Fine, fine, fine. I get it. But I was not going to let her go first because I cannot follow Tehila. You guys know it. I know it. I couldn't follow her. So, so uh, okay, Jeremy, sir. back to you, and then I'm going to let you introduce Tehila, and Teela. you just press this little down okay, button. Excellent.
1: Thank you. That's exactly what I want to do. I want to introduce Tehila. So you should now step away, let Tehila sit down. Now Teela and I, are we're doing our thing together. Oh, hi. Hi, dear. How are you? Great to see you. Hi, this is fun. Emma. I love it when we go live wow. together, Teela. That's really fun for me. Okay, so here we are. Um, a few weeks ago this is the background of how this all unfolded a few weeks ago one of my closest friends and members of our fellowship he religiously listens to our fellowship after every single live session he can never make the live session but every single say he's never he, he never misses and he said he would love if we were to talk a little bit more about family and marriage in particular and you know teal and i we have a pretty good thing going on bar hashem And um, he thought just people benefit a lot from just the personal stories and anecdotes that we sometimes share and insights, and he thought it would just be a blessing if we dedicated more time from taking Torah abstract theological ideas, and then really bringing them down into how do we make our lives better, how do we make our marriages stronger, how do we bring more love into our lives, and so first I want to start off um, with this disclaimer. I don't see myself as a good husband. I know that I need to be honest. I'm being honest. I want to be good, but I don't always fulfill that desire to the highest degree. And so people, sometimes they ask me for marriage advice. And so I immediately just give them Tahila's phone number. She deals with couples, you know, sometimes in the most difficult of times, working as a mediator, trying to bridge the gaps. And then sometimes, you know, they need to get a divorce and she's a divorce lawyer and she's truly an expert on interpersonal relationships and specifically about marriage. And I'm definitely not. I can talk about Zionism. I can talk about the Torah and the land of Israel, and I can speak with authority because my life on the Arugot farm and the, my actions in Judea, my words are backed with action. As a struggling husband in this session, I'm only trying to give over life wisdom, and I do not always live in line with the truths that I hope to share today, but I do hope that in the last 20 years of marriage and six children that we have raised together, there are lessons and insights that I could share that even if I'm not always good at implementing those lessons and ideas, it would still be a blessing for the fellowship to know. First of all, just to know that like, that's what happens. We're just people. Sometimes I'm good. Sometimes I'm bad. Sometimes we're good. And sometimes we're bad. And that is the real world. And we're not trying to create this image of the perfect family and the perfect marriage and the perfect anything, because if anyone that knows me and Teila, that's just not the reality. We're just doing our best here. And so when I told Tila, I was going to dedicate this fellowship to advice about marriage. She's like, you're going to give people advice about marriage. And so I said, well, I'm gonna have you on first. And so first I'm going to have Tehila in her explication. And it actually, of course, perfectly aligns with the Parsha of Korah in a very deep way. And then from what Tahila goes, I will hopefully build a second floor to her foundational teaching. And so Tahila, I'm going to pass over the fellowship to you now. Love to see you live here. Thank you very much for joining us today.
0: Thank you, dear. You're not all bad. You've gotten better over the years. Don't be so hard on yourself. Does everyone hear me? Yes. Okay. Can I? Ari's always fiddling with, I, I like to talk into the computer. Guys, can I have like a smile, a nod, a thumbs up? If anybody thinks it's really funny that Jeremy chose the portion of Korach to talk about marriage. Yeah, he said to me, this is the perfect Torah portion to talk about marriage. And I thought to myself, this is the Torah portion with the most fighting of any portion. What is happening in Jeremy's subconscious mind that this reminded him of marriage? I think I might be in trouble. So I'm thinking to myself, I better find something in this very fighty, uh, rebellious, argumentative portion uh, that's about marriage. And so, you know, I'm reading the portion and I'm kind of scratching my head like, why did Jeremy choose uh, marriage this week. Now, what's really interesting, guys, is that the portion doesn't actually talk about marriage at all. But here's what's interesting I discovered that the Midrashic traditions actually go out of their way to draw the marriage stories into the biblical narrative here. You know, because the Midrash, we talk about this a lot, right? The Midrash's job is to fill in the spaces. Where the Torah is unclear, that's where our that's where our oral tradition that's been passed down from generation to generation comes in and fills in the spaces that we don't understand in the Torah. So now, when you start reading this week's portion, it's already unclear from the get-go, right? You open up the portion, and the first verse just jumps out at us. It says, Korah the son of Yitzhar, the son of Kehat, the son of Levi, took dot 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 no continuation took." along with Datan and Aviram, the sons of Eliab and on the son of Pelet, descendants of Reuben. And that's the end of the verse. I bet in your English versions, there's, versions, there's something in parentheses, took uh, himself, took himself to the side. They add in all kinds of words in the translation because the actual verse doesn't make sense, but the words are that he took. So that's strange. What do they take? Second of all, what's strange is that we have four leaders. We have four leaders of the rebellion Right here in this verse, we have Korach, we have Datan, we have Aviram, and we have Eli- uh, and we have On, the son of Pelet, right? They're, the last three are from the tribe of Reuben, and then we have 250 other kind of, you know, uh, leaders of the different tribes that join in as well. Now, what jumps out at you when you're reading this is that as the rebellion unfolds, Moshe has dialogue with Korach, but Korach just keeps on rebelling and he perishes. And then Moshe tries to go into dialogue with Datan and Aviram, and they're really rude. They refuse to even talk to him. They perish. Then the 250 take the incense challenge, thinking that they're going to be chosen by Hashem. They perish. Who's missing, guys? There's one person who started out in the first verse of the rebellion, but we don't hear about anything having to do with him for the rest of the portion. And that is On, the son of Pelet, right there from the first verse. So the Midrash is really interesting here. It actually attributes both Korach's rebellion and on the son of Pelet, not continuing in the rebellion, to their wives and their marriage and their, their marital relationships, which is really deep and multi-layered. I you know, when I was trying to figure out like, how did the Midrash even get to this? I realized it's actually building off of this word and Korach took, because in Hebrew there are many ways to say took. One of them is That's a Hebrew word that we've talked about in the past is also the word for taking a wife, for getting married. So it's like folded up in this mysterious word is that it's like hinting to you, it's calling out to you that there's some kind of marriage backstory here in the verses. So this Midrash is worth looking at closely because it really teaches us, I think something foundational about how our relationships between husbands and wives can build up or destroy. So what happened here the midrash is really great it says on the son of pelat was part of Korach's rebellion and his wife said to him what are you going to get out of this quarrel Moshe is your teacher now and you're second you know you're secondary to Moshe let's say your rebellion succeeds and Korach replaces Moshe well then you'll be secondary to Korach what are you even going to get out of this revolt right So, you know, own has gotten himself all riled up. He's feeling bad about his status in life. And I need more honor. And, you know, when you first read it, she sounds kind of harsh, like, hey, buddy, you know, hey, husband, you're a second rate guy. So you're going to be a second rate guy, no matter what. That's not really what she's saying. What she's saying is, is you're from the tribe of Reuben. You're not going to be a Levite. I like you the way you are. You don't have to go try to be something that you're not, not is in his whole ego trip, but that's not your fight to be having. You're a student of Moshe. That's wonderful. Meaning she's pushing him to be an upright, humble person who's happy with his lot in life. She's saying it's not just about having more and more status. Be a student of Moshe. That's amazing. You're learning from Moshe. And then the Midrash goes on to say, you know what On said to his wife? He's like, oh my gosh, you're right. But he said, what can I do? I swore to them that I would be with all of them. Meaning he's stuck in this one vision of how things need to play out. He's like, well, you know, I'm locked and loaded in this in this rebellion. I can't really back out. He's stuck. And here's her amazing job, Mrs. Mrs. Own's job. You know, when, when God created Eve, it says that she wanted to make, that God wanted to make an Ezer Kinegdo, a helpmate against him. And look what a perfect helpmate against him she is. You know, the ideal wife that, the Torah and the sages are portraying is not one that just blindly says, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, whatever you want, honey, right? She builds up her husband to who he can be. She supports him and she strengthens him. But when she sees he's going off the right path, she doesn't just say, okay, sweetheart, whatever you want. She takes matters into her own hands and even goes against him, but with the intention in her heart of helping him be more upright. So she's exactly trying to be his helpmate against him, meaning she wants to help him, even if it means sometimes being against him. Look at the complexity that the Torah and the sages are able to hold on to in trying to give us a model of what a, 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 an ideal relationship is. And then Midrash goes on and she actually uses the words of Korach himself. The Midrash says that On's wife said to him, remember all of the assembly are holy right? What does that mean? She goes, you guys are all, all, the men in this rebellion, I bet are so holy. You sit down and I'm going to save you. And what did she do? She gave him wine to drink until he fell asleep. She laid him down and she loosened her hair as if she was bathing. And then whoever came to call on to come out to the rebellion against Moshe saw this immodest woman. And they were like, Oh, well, uh, catch you later on. We're just going to keep on going on our way. Right? So she actually said Here, she's just so brilliant. She turns around Korach's own words to show her husband the absurdity of his line of thinking. Korach said, oh, we're all equally holy. We're all so holy. Yeah, you're so holy. Why are you rebelling against God's will? So she goes, oh, these people are so holy. They're surely going to be careful to not, you know, look at an immodest woman. Where did they get all of those ideas of modesty? Moshe is the one who taught that to us. So if you, if you believe the Torah, then why are you rebelling against Moshe? You're so holy. So she's showing him, she's highlighting for him through her examples, through her living actions, she's highlighting for him the fallacy in his thinking. And then when On wakes up, Korach, the Midrash says, and his company had already been swallowed up by the earth. And the Midrash here is so uh, colorful. It says that the earth opened up all the way until his very bed. So that he would like clearly see that's because of what his wife did that he was saved. And then the rabbis conclude that part of the midrash by saying that when Proverbs 14:1, when it says the wise woman builds her house, that is what we learn from the wife of Owen the son of Pelet. And then the Midrash says that this is contrasted with the second part of the verse in Proverbs, where it says, But the woman with folly tears it down. The rabbis said. But that is the wife of Korach, because the wife of Korach was also responsible for the downfall of her house. Look how amazing the Midrash is. It's basically filling in the blanks of how did these guys end up where they ended up? They all ended up where they ended up because of the decisions that their wives made. And so he says, what does she do? Now, there are a lot of midrash, uh, Midrashic versions of what Korach's wife said to goad him into rebellion some say that she was like mocking Moses's teaching some say that she was upset that they had to tie their tithes to the priests and some say that she was complaining about his shaved head she didn't think he looked cute because Moshe Moshe said all the Levites had to shave their heads and she thought he looked kind of bad there are a lot of different versions but I don't even need those midrashim because I know exactly what the dynamic was. I can feel what the dynamic was, right? I don't need to choose because I can see it in my mind's eyes. When you don't know, own the son of Pellet's wife was encouraging him and showing him, it's amazing to be a student of motion. You should be happy with your lot. Think about Korach's wife. She had even more reason to be encouraging her husband and building him up. I mean, he's a Levite, not only a Levite, but from the most honored family of Levites, the family of Kahat that get to carry the vessels of the tabernacle. She should be saying to him, wow, I am so proud of you. You are so lucky. But what does she do? I know what she did. She tears him down. And it doesn't matter what particular thing she was minimizing. What she was really saying to him is, Moshe has more status than you. They've turned you into a nobody. The Talmud uses the most colorful language, says that Korach's wife said to him, Moshe treats you. Now watch this language that they use. Close your ears, children. He says, Moshe treats you like a piece of excrement that he kicks around. That's what the Talmud says that Korach's wife said to him, that you're a piece of excrement that he kicks around. What is Korach hearing? He's hearing that to my wife, I look like a piece of excrement being kicked around. What does that do to a man? What does he feel the downfall of her house is from that so the midrash is teaching us this marital dynamic of ezer kinegdo a helpmate against you against him how can you you know how the wife operates is the secret to the success or the failure of the home had own's wife just been an ezer just been a helpmate she would have just agreed with her husband and he would have perished and so would she and so would their children Korach's wife on the other hand was just kinegdo she was just against him tearing him down, making him feel like a loser and her home perished as well. Who was the only wife who was able to bring salvation to her home? That was Own's wife because she was a helpmate against him, guiding him wisely and righteously, building him up, telling him how amazing he is, showing him how he, well, his potential, but also not afraid of bringing her own opinion in order to help him. She doesn't do it in a manly way. She doesn't get out of the fight and start or- arguing with Korach. She uses her feminine traits the nurturing of her husband to put him to sleep, her natural feminine beauty and characteristics, whatever she has at her disposal, she uses to help her husband. And I think this story really connects beyond marriage also to the broader message of this portion. What's going on here? If we look at the rebellion, it was the most amazing families, the Levites, the Reubenites were the, you know, the oldest of the sons of Jacob and the noblemen, 250 noblemen. There weren't any poor people here. These were the elites, people you would expect to be Pleased with their lots and their honor in life, but they're still peering over their shoulders and being jealous of the other guy. How does the portion resolve? It resolves with the sticks. Moshe takes the sticks and puts them in the tabernacle, and the stick of Aaron flourishes. The midrash says something so beautiful. It says that all of the sticks were from one tree broken into pieces. What was Moshe trying to teach them then? He says, Look at a tree. If you see things just you know disjointedly and individualistically, you say, I want to be the fruit. The fruit is colorful. The fruit is sweet. But if you have a holistic view of the tree, you realize that all the parts of the tree are important. The branches. And the trunk and the bark and the roots, the fruits would not be there if not for the rest of the parts of the tree. has so many important functions. So only together the tree can work. We have priests and Levites and Israel and nations, not because one is better or worse, but just because there are different jobs in life. Everyone has its own unique attributes. And I was reading the Nativo Shalom. He says something amazing. What was Korach's claim? He says, (laughs) He says, All of the assembly are holy. He says it in plural, meaning he sees the assembly as a bunch of plural individuals, but Hashem looks at us as one body, as one unity with many parts. And the Midrash goes on to say that these sticks, the sticks stayed in the hand of the kings of Judah, the house of David, for all of the years of the kingdom of David. And it was lost when the temple was destroyed. And that it's going to come, these sticks are going to come back in the times of Mashiach. Now, that's obviously not literal because we know those sticks were kept in the temple. What does it mean that he held it? He held, the kings held it in their mind. They understood the idea of the unity. And it's really cool because the Midrash shows us, tells us that when Mashiach comes, these sticks will return. What does that mean? That we're all going to understand That our job isn't to be like the other person, to be, you know, try to have the other job, but that all of us, it's true in a marriage, the wife's job is to be the wife and not the husband. The husband doesn't need to try to be the wife. And it's true for all of us. And here, you know, even in our fellowship, for everyone to understand what is, what is it to be a priest? What is it to be a Levite? What is it to be Israel? And what is it to be a nation? We'll all understand that we are all parts of the same tree, each with our own unique jobs. So with that, I'll hand it over to you, Jeremy, to give some of your marital wisdom as well. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. That was brilliant. Thank you very much. And that's actually what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about the separation of men and women. That's really what the essence of this of this teaching is that the world today is so confused. They're not just erasing the lines. They're scribbling the lines and cartooned lines and there's crayons everywhere. And it's so confusing that if you just ask one of the um, most hardcore left-wing secular people today, what is a woman? they can't answer you. Ideologically, philosophically, they can't answer you. And so what I wanna talk about today is going all the way back to the source. God created man, God created woman. What does that mean when they come together? And so I've already given my disclaimer, and so now what I want to do is I want to just try to share the insights that I have from the Torah and hopefully from a little bit of my life experience. But first, I want to just mention what Teila referred to several times, because if you do not read the Hebrew, I checked, I'm not exaggerating, seven different English translations, both the Jewish ones and the Christian ones, and all of them miss this mark. So I want to open up to chapter two in the book of Genesis, chapter two, verse 18, and it's the creation of man. In the creation of woman. And here's what it says. And Hashem Elohim said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper against him. And in every other translation, it either says a helper corresponding to him, a helper completing him, a helper comparable to him, but Ezer Kenegdo literally means a helper against him. It's like versus. It's like the Houston Rockets versus the Denver Nuggets. The word connected is versus. So he's making a helpmate that is against him. And that is really important. From the get-go, the Hebrew here is really clear. The Torah isn't saying that he manned men and women to live happily ever after in a constant state of unending love and romance. It's like, no, no, no. Men and women are gonna come together and inherently there is going to be a clash. Swords that will clash against each other and sharpen each other. And the Torah therefore says, man shall leave his father's home, cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That's the ultimate vision. But how do they become one? It happens not through love and romance. It happens through kinegdo. It happens through two opposing forces, two opposite energies, two different minds, two different needs that come together and they make something new. But if you expect love and marriage to just be happy romance Hollywood, then what happens is you have created the platform and the vessel for unhappiness in life. Because unhappiness, as we mentioned in the past, is the gap between your expectations and reality. And the Torah is telling us from the beginning, don't expect anything else. It's an Ezer Konegdo. The entire process is going to be something that is um, a clash of worlds, a, a coming together. And there was this one picture that I saw on Twitter. And if we could get it up there, it's this picture of this kind of blobby guy. And the man himself, is etching himself from that blobby thing into like a perfectly chiseled, healthy, amazing image of a man. I'm like, well, that's just really a beautiful image of what we could do with our life. But I think that that's actually a good way for men to see their wives arguing with them. And because we're in the parasha of arguments, we're in the parasha of clashes, that's what it's talking about. Our wives, as they are doing that, they are edging us, molding us into who we were created to be. And it's a little bit of a connecto. It's a little bit against us. Each time it hurts a little bit. Each time they're chipping away at us. They're chipping away at our ego. They're chipping away at our selfishness. And that eventually that kind of like blobby thing is becoming strong, a muscular body. That's what happens to us. Emotionally, we become stronger. Psychologically, we become stronger. Spiritually, we become stronger. That connecto, that interaction is molding us into who we were created to be. And I read this beautiful quote from a Stoic philosopher named Seneca. And he says, happy is the man who can make others better, not merely when he is in their company, but even when he is in their thoughts. And I think about that with Tahila all the time. I'm alone doing my thing, And it's like a little angel on my shoulder. What would Tehila think of this? What would Tehila do of this? Even when she's not around me physically, I still, she makes me a better person just because I know who she is. And the goal of any love relationship should be to bring out the best within each other, to speak from the highest place within yourself and direct your speech to the highest place in the other and help grow that person into who Hashem created them to be. And as we both, in husband and wife, grow closer to Hashem, we grow closer to each other. And that is, of course, the ancient Hebrew within the word itself. The word for Hebrew, man and woman, is ish and isha. If we could get it up on the screen, you can see it in the Hebrew itself. And then that's comprised of three, four letters in total, ish, isha. And there's two letters that are the same in both of them. Is Can we get it on the screen, please? And that's the Aleph and the Shin. The Aleph and the Shin, which are in both of them, is fire. And the letters that are different is the Yud and the hay. And that's ya. that's God. And so what is it saying? It's like husband and wife. If God is not in the center of that relationship, forget about it. In this modern world, if you don't have God in your life, the fires of Netflix and Hollywood and the media and social media will consume you. Only God can stand as a hedge, as a shield between the sanctity of your marriage and the insanity of the outside world. But what's the problem? Marriage is not a simple thing. Marriage is hard work. Life is hard. Life is a hard work. And why is marriage hard? Because there are two people with two opinions. And that means almost by definition, there's going to be arguments. And so what do we do with that? We're in the Parsha of arguments. And this is an ancient verse from the Ethics of our fathers, Masechet Avot, chapter 5, verse 17. And here's what it says. Every dispute that is for the sake of heaven will in the end endure, but everyone that is not for the sake of heaven will not endure. Which is the controversy that is for the sake of heaven? Such was the controversy of Hillel in Shammai. And so it's saying that there's two types of arguments, an argument that's for heaven's sake with God in the center, and there's arguments that are not for heaven's sake, and who knows what the agenda is. Maybe it's ego, maybe it's money, maybe it's pride, maybe it's power. And which is the controversy that is not for heaven's sake? The one for heaven's sake was Hillel and Shammai. Which is the controversy that's not for heaven's sake? For not heaven's sake, it says Korach and his Eda, Korach and his congregation. But what's so interesting about this is that the argument that is for heaven's sake, it says, in the end, will endure. Huh? Well, I mean, it should be. We'll be solved. We'll get to the final solution. It's for heaven's sake. God will eventually show us the truth. It's like, no, for heaven's sake, the argument, if it's really for heaven's sake, the argument will continue to go. And in some ways, I feel like Tehila and I, we have arguments that we've had uh, for centuries. But literally, it feels like I hear Tahila's voice echoing through the generations. But I told you so many times, why do you go out to dinner with Ari if I've made dinner for you and the kids? And I've heard that throughout many, many lifetimes. And it sounds like an argument that has endured. It's endured. (laughs) But we are both with God in our center. It's okay. I'm becoming better. I'm slowly, slowly becoming better. But there are entire sentences that I'm not allowed to say in my house anymore. I want you to know that. Disputes that have endured. For example, I'm not allowed to say the words I thought anymore. If you could imagine that. I know that I'm about to go over time. So I'm going to ask everyone's permission for an extra seven minutes. Is that okay? Because this is this is this is golden material here. All right, you're shaking your head. I don't get to go over seven minutes. You always go over time. Seven more minutes. Everyone's gonna like it. But this is something amazing. Do, are you not allowed to say words to Shayna? I have words I'm not allowed to say. I'm like cancel culture in my home. I'm not allowed to say the words I thought. Can you imagine that? T will be make like, why sound, are you playing the guitar?
0: Sound like a lunatic. You're making me sound like a lunatic. Don't make me sound like a lunatic. Give me my bet, do my best argument, not my worst argument.
1: So why well, are you playing the guitar? And I'll say, Well, I thought the house was ready for Shabbat. It's like you thought you're not allowed to think. You ask, is the house ready for Shabbat? I will say, Where are you? I'm like, Well, I'm riding Hector on my horse with Edin. In fact, you're riding Hector with your horse. I said, Why? I was like, Well, I thought it was a good time to ride the horse. You're not allowed to think. Don't say, I thought. And I'm like, Okay, I need to ask. Don't think, just ask. So I'm working on that. I never say, I think anymore. I have learned that lesson. I try, I don't always ask, but I'm getting better at the asking part also but I'm just trying slowly, but surely. And of course, so now after 20 years of marriage and multiple lives, perhaps just echoing through the generations, (laughs) why did you ask? Why are you thinking, Jeremy? No thinking allowed in this family. So I'm working on it. And I just, you know, I'm trying to listen, but you know, Hashem blessed me with an ability to talk and communicate and to the degree that I'm a gifted communicator. I am a dysfunctional listener. And that's something that I really need to work on. So in my own personal journey in becoming a better husband and a better listener and a hearer, and I'd ask her what she needs. And I'm not so good at that. But over the last 20 years of marriage, I, I'm getting a little bit better. And, you know, we, we still have arguments because they endure because Teela is on a mission to try to make me a better person. And, you know, I, I still have, I'm like a single-minded focus inability to see and hear what's going around at me. Like sometimes, you know, we'll just have challenges, but- That's not for the fellowship because that's each individual person is going to have their own individual challenges. But I want you to know that, you know, with all of that, it's too simplistic to say if we're now trying to get to like rules about husbands and wives. It's too easy to say the man is the authority and the woman's job is to submit. I, I, I would say that that's true when it comes to the Torah law meaning if an Ashkenazi girl marries a Sephardi girl, the husband is the authority and she should adopt all of his halakhic positions. She is joining his home. She's taking his last name. And then he is the authority of the Torah in the home. That's fair. But to say that he's the authority of everything in life, I just don't see that in the Torah. If I was the authority and Tehila's job was only to submit to me, uh, I don't want to think what my life would look like, what my children's life would look like. It would be an entire Israeli salad. That's not, that's not, that's not, nuanced enough. Abraham and Sarah, Abraham is told everything your wife says, everything Sarah says, listen to your wife. In Isaac and Rebekah, it's Rebekah that was able to see the truth of Jacob and Esau. And Isaac was blind to it. And Rebekah is the one. You see it with Moses and Zipporah. Zipporah is the one that wants to circumcise their children. So many times the wife isn't just submitting. Look at the stories in the Midrash with Korah. The wife is there as an Ezer Kinegdo. It's a balance that they're there to both help each other. But there is an ancient division made in the Kabbalah between men and women. And I found this to be absolutely life-changing. And it says that man is chokhmah and the woman is Bina. Those are their sh- strengths. Those are their powers. Those are their attributes. Those are two different types of wisdoms. What is chokhmah? Chokhmah is the initial influence, the initial inspiration. It's like, I want to move to the Arugot farm and live alone on a mountain. That's the initial influence into the world, the initial inspiration. Bina is the ability to take that big vision and to break it down into details, the architectural plan of that idea. So Chokhmah, I want to build a home on a mountain. I want to build a tower in a valley. Bina understands the vision, but has the gift to make the architectural plans. What's the height of the ceilings? What's the thickness of the walls? How big will the rooms be? The details. But what happens is that one time, You know, you'll be inspired. And then your wife will say, oh, but what about this? But what about that? And we sort of experience that as a downer. But when you read the Midrash, Chava's hair was braided. She braided her hair because the man is just like undifferentiated, just wild. And it's like the the wife's job to help us bring it down into earth, to braid the hair, that we can break it down into the details. I want to go to the beach on Friday. Friday is so long now. The ocean is so much fun. We got a 19-year-old. We have a five-year-old. Everyone enjoys the beach. It's so hard to find an activity where everyone can enjoy. It's summertime. Let's go to the beach. And then Tehila's like, but wait a minute. I don't understand. We, well, the kids only finish kindergarten at 12 and the kids need to have lunch and all these things. And I could be like, oh, you're just being annoying. Let's just go to the beach. But it's like, no, she's taking the vision. And she's like, well, we also have to prepare a lunch so we don't starve. We need the water that we don't die of thirst. And, you know, the kids do have school and we have to time it out properly. But if we realize that those are two unique, distinct elements, Chokhmah and bina an initial inspiration and a vision, but then to take that and to break it down into the details women are told that they have they have an extra ability, a special type of understanding that's able to really go down into the resolutions to the details. And so they also say that man is the sun and woman is the moon. So the man's job is to be the shining light in the home. He needs to be the source of Torah in the home. He needs to be the shining light of Emunah in the home. He needs to be the influence of the energy of that home. He's the sun that's radiating that light. Now, the wife can reflect the light and make something marvelous like moonlight. But the man's responsibility is to be the spiritual light in the home. At the same time, the man is like the rain. And the woman is like the earth, Ima Adamad, like mother Earth that's like that's like a Hebrew term that we use. It's like emotionally the man needs to feel like he's providing the rain. He's providing for his family. he's the influencer and the woman like a womb like the earth. Take that and to grow it, to take what's been sowed and to grow it into something beautiful. But the problem today is that men are not men and women are not women. And the problem now is that women are trying to make men like more trained women. It's like, no, no, don't try to make men into better women. That's not the right way. You're missing the mark there. Men are not unrefined women. Men are men and women are women. And if we can get that, that actually coming together, that clashing of swords makes both of us better in the end. Remember, man is a hunter. And so what did we do? We were single-minded, tunnel vision, one thought, go bring back the food for our family. So we do not have the superpower ability of multitasking that women have. So women would be sitting around the village as they're sorting out the weed, small groups, chattering through their things. They're able to do things and talk at the same time. Sometimes... I'm doing the dishes and Tila starts to talk to me and I stop doing the dishes and I turned to Tila to give her my attention. And then she sort of gets annoyed. I'm like, why are you stopping to do the dishes? Keep on doing that. Let's just talk while we're working, talk while we're working. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I am a simple man. I am sorry, dear. I just, I'm stupid like that. I just know how to do one thing at a time. And that's just the way that men are made. But if we accept that, then don't try to make us into something that we're not. I mean, my friend was over for Shabbat and she told me this funny story. She had 16 yeshiva boys uh, over for Shabbat, just chesed on top of chesed. Kindness, welcoming them to their home, feeding them, buying the food for them. And then at the end of the meal, she put a big garbage bag right next to the door and all 16 boys just walked right over the garbage bag and didn't put any of their food in the garbage. And these were like great boys, great families. They didn't do it on purpose because they're on their way to pray the afternoon prayers or they're on their way out to like a walk in town. They just didn't see it because they had like one track tunnel vision mind. And if we realize that, ah, give us specific tasks one at a time. We don't have the Bina. We don't have that understanding to take all of the details and make order out of it. This week, I was looking for my uh, wallet that my phone goes in, this thing. I was looking for it the whole afternoon. I'm like, Tila, where's my phone wallet? Where's my phone wallet? It's almost Shabbat. I don't want Shabbat to start, and I don't know where my phone wallet is. For the whole day, I'm walking around the house as I'm doing things, looking for this thing, and then finally, Tila agrees to look. She literally just goes like this. It's right there, and she saw it like immediately right on top of one of the books on the bookshelf, like some sort of... Einstein ability of finding the berry inside the leaves of the trees like that's supernatural abilities that men just don't have like help us find stuff we just can't do it so what do we need to do women don't need what men need and men do not need what women need men they need something like the king of the home they need to be respected women need to be shined on need to be loved you don't need a love on the man I'm going to need that He needs to be respected. Those are two different elements. It's two different energies. And the more that society continues to confuse men and women, the more unhappy men and women are going to be. And so women, they can shine their light onto the family like the moonlight. But if the man doesn't take the responsibility to shine the light, to be the source of good vibes in the home, of emunah in the home, the woman can't carry it alone. She needs the man to take responsibility for the matzav in the home, for that good vibes, Torah vibes, holiness in the home. And I want you to know that there's also a fixing that needs to be done. And I'll tell you this from my own personal story. I have been alive for 43 years. I've never seen my parents fight. My oldest brother is 50 years old, 51 years old. He's never seen my parents fight. Imagine that. We've never seen our parents fight. That's like an amazing thing. That's why I know that I'm not a good husband because I'm not my father. I try to be good, but I'm just, I know I have a very high bar. Tahila's family on the other hand, I've never seen Tahila's parents not fight. Meaning Tahila's parents communicate in a fight. That's the way that they talk. And it's the funniest thing. Tahila's family is the funniest family that I've ever met. The parents love each other. They are literally best friends, but they communicate and fight. It's never like, Shia, please pass the salt. It's more like, Shia, please pass the salt and stop wearing that stupid looking hat on your head. It looks ridiculous. And then Shia will say, I'm going to be buried in this hat woman. And then it's just like, that's how they talk. They're in a constant sort of like, it's like um, a, a sitcom. It's so funny. But imagine those two worlds coming together, a boy that had never seen his parents fight, And a girl who grew up with her parents only bickering and sort of fighting with each other like that, imagine what happens when those two comes together. It's like, whoa. So there's a tikkun that happens. There's a fixing, but you're not just fixing yourself and molding yourself into who you need to be. You're also fixing your family tree. You're fixing the things that were not right in the way that you grew up. And our chance in this generation is to fix that for the next generation and the next generation. And that's how slowly but surely we're preparing the generation of Mashiach. By fixing ourselves, we're fixing our family tree that the fruits that come and the fruits that come from them, slowly but surely the fruits are getting sweeter, slowly but surely our swords are getting sharper. But you need to know that it is a generational process. And every generation, according to our tradition now, we are actually getting stronger. We're getting smarter, we're getting better. It's like we're preparing ourselves to be the generation of Mashiach. And the core foundation of that Am Yisrael is one family. The whole Torah is one family, the whole story. Adam and Eve are a family. Noah and his wife is a family. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, Leah. It's all a family. This fellowship, I know so many people that refer to it as their mishpacha, as their family. It's one extended family built of smaller families. It's like small families, those sticks that then make a big tree. But each tree is like a, it's, its an extension of one movement. And so the redemption doesn't come from the sky. It actually comes from each and every individual home. And so shalom in the home, happy wife, happy life. And what is the key? It's to know that men are men and women are women. And then if we can take that chokhmah and we can take that bina and bring it together, what happens is we have da'at. Vimal'ah aretz da'at Hashem. And the world will become filled with the knowledge of God. Chokhmah and binat together create that knowledge. And only when we come together, only as our swords are being sharpened, only as we chisel each other into who Hashem created us to be, to bring out the best within us, that is where Hashem resides. That's where the Yud and the He are in between that, in between man and woman. And so may Hashem reside in our homes. May he strengthen us and may he know that our arguments are leshem Shamayim, that they be for heaven's sake. And may every family in this fellowship and everyone that's listening to this fellowship be blessed with Hashem's presence in their home, be blessed with Hashem's presence in their marriage. May their children see how hard the husband and wife are working, how hard they work for them, how hard they work for each other and may their relationship inspire the next generation to be even better so may you all be blessed from Eretz Israel today Land of Israel Fellowship I can't wait to see you I'm coming to Manhattan to Dallas to Colorado and to Orlando so if you're somewhere in those areas I would love to have gatherings where we could finally see each other in person but until then I bless you from this place Yissa Adonai Panav Shalom. Shalom, my friends. See you next week.
2: To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below, or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel, live from the Judean frontier.